My name is Joe Miller and I'm with the Majid Center. We ask the big questions about life in the cosmos. And today I'm here with Dan Keebler, who will be introducing himself shortly. Dan is going to be talking to us about order in the cosmos, order in the universe. Where did it come from? How did it get there? What does it mean? Without further ado, let me introduce Dan. Dan, how are you? I'm doing great, Joe. Thanks for having me. Just to introduce myself, I am the Dean of the School of Natural and Applied Sciences at Franciscan University. I've been, I've been a Franciscan for uh, 20 years now. I'm a biologist by trade and have a, a degree, in, a PhD in molecular and cell biology. And right now, my, my research set is on adult stem cells in fat and bone marrow, and I teach courses in cell biology, evolution. You know, I also do a, a lot of work in the area of trying to look at how evolution fits with and can be integrated into a faith perspective. That's a broad range of, of interesting topics that you work on there. The first question I have really for you is what motivated you to pursue science as a career? Yeah, that's a, a good question. I kind of stumbled upon it as an undergraduate. I bounced around like a lot of undergraduates uh, from major to major. Um, was uh, planning on going to med school, um, and uh, the sort of career plan was changed when a professor invited me to come into his lab and do research with him. And I just sort of fell in love with the uh, problem solving and the ability to investigate a, a problem scientifically and come up with an answer. I really uh, sort of changed my whole career trajectory just doing research as an undergraduate and decided to go on to grad school at that point. Uh, so you had a choice of sciences. So why biology? Yeah, I think, you know, I was interested sort of in medicine. And so that was sort of the natural uh, progression to go into to biology. Uh, but it also, uh, you know, in biology, I think you're, you are touching on some of the more interesting questions about existence, about, uh, you know, what is it that makes humans different from other animals and what makes living organisms different from non-living things. And those, those two sort of meta questions, I think, are part and parcel of, uh, of biology, unlike other scientific disciplines that touch on those things. But I was really interested in those two questions. You're uh, uh, from the East Coast, and you ended up going to UC Berkeley. Was that by design, or was that by fortuitous events? Uh, probably fortuitous events. You know, it's one of the best programs in the country, and I was studying on the East Coast, and I wanted to go out and study somewhere on the West Coast, and uh, found, you know, was able to get in there and found a great research advisor and uh, had, you know, a great education out there, and you got to really discuss things with a lot of great, very, very smart people there, and that, you know, was a huge benefit of being at a place like that. Yeah, what were you working on? What was your uh, PhD focused on? Yeah, it's interesting. My PhD focused on looking at sort of the underlying mechanisms of uh, seizures uh, using fruit flies as a model system. So we had a model that was susceptible to seizures, and we looked at different drugs, different genetic uh, treatments that might modify that. You still do that, but uh, my research switched about seven or eight years ago to start looking at adult stem cells in fat and bone marrow. Yeah, you've had a long interest in evolution. As a matter of fact, you had a book out come out in 2007 called The Evolution Controversy that you co-authored, and it provided a balanced and critical examination of the four major schools of thought, according to the Amazon uh, description. Uh, so uh, what are those four major schools? 
Yeah, the, the four schools of thought that we talked about in that book were the Neo-Darwinian school, um, creationism, uh, specifically young earth creationism, uh, intelligent design, and what we call meta-Darwinism. Um, you know, so the, just a little backstory, the, 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 the purpose of the book um, is sort of emerged out of just conversations I'd had with uh, people at Berkeley in the sciences as I was going through my PhD program, but also just uh, conversations with the lay people. Uh, um, you know, it, it's funny when the people, uh, you know, I tell them I teach evolution, they would, uh, it's one of those things where they just launch in and tell you what they think of it, you know, whether yeah, good or bad. Everybody's got an they, opinion. Every, uh, yeah. Every, yeah. <laughs> and everybody's an expert, apparently, That's right. you know, so yeah. um, I thought, you know, it'd be nice to just lay out some of the scientific arguments and evidence for all four of these in, in, in sort of an unbiased fashion. Now I realize that nobody's unbiased, but I tried to be as unbiased as I could um, as we uh, uh, put the book uh, together, just to say, well, what's the evidence, uh, uh, what's the best argument that each of these uh, schools sort of makes uh, for their position. So the Darwinian, neo-Darwinian position was the idea that natural selection um, is the main mechanism and sort of drives evolutionary change and almost all evolutionary change could be explained by uh, the process of natural selection. Um, and uh, so we, we, we uh, described the evidence uh, for that. Um, in a, a chapter in the book, and then another one on young earth creationism. And then this one was the hardest one for me to be uh, unbiased about, but this is the uh, idea that uh, what's the scientific you know, evidence that the interpretation of the evidence uh, that the earth is uh, you know, young and it was created in seven days. So you have to make certain scientific arguments uh, uh, for this or postulates. And so uh, we critique the, uh, those, those positions there in that chapter. Uh, then uh, intelligent design was uh, an argument that's you know, gained ground over the last uh, 20 years. I like to refer to it as biological intelligent design now because it's the argument that uh, uh, certain people put out that uh, you know the natural selection can't explain all of evolutionary history, and therefore uh, there has to be some type of a designer who uh, you know uh, fiddles with things or sticks his hand in there, and occasionally there's certain structures that are too complex to evolve. So it's more like an occasionalism where God sort of inserts himself or uh, uh, in, in, uh, interjects sort of in the process, um, and we. Um, discuss the ev evidence that they try to put forward to explain how certain structures can't evolve. And the last school, we called it the Meta-Darwin uh, School. And this is where we sort of lumped in all the other um, uh, sort of natural mechanisms. So Meta-Darwinists are not people that argue necessary with natural selection. They believe that natural selection plays an important role in evolution, but they um, argue that there's other processes that are just as important or have an important role in shaping evolution. And so we, we discuss those and their arguments. And, um, you know, if we had done the you know, in hindsight, you know, we probably should have used, um, it, it might have been better to use the term ev uh, extended evolutionary synthesis. And that's what's usually used now. You see EES, this, uh, the theory that um, there is um, other things besides natural selection, other natural mechanisms um, that are important, um, that have a big role in um, uh, driving evolution or uh, determining evolutionary outcomes. Um, so you have sort of two schools, neo-Darwinism and this meta-Darwinism um, or extended evolutionary synthesis that are sort of 
uh, give different natural theories of uh, natural mechanisms of how evolution works. And then you got the creationism and intelligent design schools that sort of point out that the natural mechanisms, try to argue that natural mechanisms don't work, that there's got to be some direct divine intervention um, going there. So those are, those are sort of two broad classes, and we broke each broad class into two subclasses and um, laid it out there in the book. Yeah, uh, with the exception of creationism, uh, the three other schools uh, would agree, I think, that the uh, process has been going on for billions of years. Uh, is that um, a correct statement there? Yeah, for the most part. I think the, in the biological intelligent design school, um, you know, it's, it's hard to categorize everybody in there as believing that. There are certain people in that camp that would argue that, the yes, certainly the Earth is 4.5 billion years old and the evolutionary process has been going on for, you know, four um, you know, uh, billionaires, and uh, but there are others that um, don't, you know argue for a, a younger Earth and so forth. So there, there, you know, the, these divisions never actually, you know, are, are, are hard and fast. That there's some bleed over between what the creationist intelligent design school, and there's also some bleed over between the neo-Darwinian and, and the meta-Darwinian, uh, the extended evolutionary synthesis um, the school. Yeah, nothing's ever that neat, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but uh, how strong is the evidence uh, that the process has been going on for billions of years? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, the, the evidence is extremely uh, strong that there has been an evolutionary process uh, going on for uh, billions of years. There's evidence for, you know, fossils and, and single cell life. Uh, you know, some of it's uh, controversial, but there's evidence uh, that dates back 3.8 billion years. Um, but there's certainly uh, strong evidence uh, that it's been going on for billions of years in terms of the fossil record, um, the age of the rocks that you find these fossils in. And, and so it's, it's uh, you know, pretty evident that we have a very, very long process that, that, that's been played out on um, Earth. And you have a, a huge variety of organisms that have inhabited this Earth over you know, that uh, four billion year time time span and trying to understand why certain organisms evolved at certain times and why the pattern looks the way it does is, you know, that's the, 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 the big question in evolutionary biology. And that's the, the things that the evolutionary biologists are, are trying to understand. Some people would claim that the Cambrian explosion throws a wrench into this theory of small incremental changes and that there was suddenly all these new life forms and that the complexity of these life forms was much greater than things before. How do you respond to that? Yeah, the, you know, just, just to set it straight, you know, the Cambrian explosion happened about 540 million years ago and there were sort of starting to be uh, uh, complex um, life forms, uh, larger life forms that um, existed um, uh, before then. Um, <clears throat> but uh, the Cambrian was a, a case where you have this sort of rapid expansion of animal life um, and you get a huge amount of complexity um, that emerges in a relatively short period of time over, you know, a, a span of, uh, a, you know, a few million years. And, you know, there is this, this notion in the, sort of the, the Darwinian notion that the evolutionary change has to be slow. It gets gradual, it's slow. Um, and so there's a lot of things that, well, how do you get this rapid uh, morphological change happening in a short period of time? Um, and, you know, 
when we talk about a short period of time, you're talking about a evolutionary short period of time. So you're still talking over millions of years. Um, and trying to understand what happened at the Cambrian is one of the, the, the more interesting questions in evolutionary biology. And, um, you know, it, it looks at, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, of different factors. One of the things that really seems to um, have happened at that point in time is that, uh, you know, there, there is an increased um, availability of oxygen over uh, this, this period. Um, it's not a huge spike, but as you increase the, the amount of oxygen, you increase the... Um, uh, amount of energy organisms can get, all right? And when you have more energy, you can get bigger, you can get more complex, you can do things that you couldn't otherwise do. So for example, um, if you um, have, a, uh, you know, a, develop a nervous system with eyes and, and have ability to move and hunt, you know, that requires a lot of energy and it really requires the oxygen to be around to be able to do that aerobic uh, metabolism. And so um, you, 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 once you have that, though, you start an arms race in a sense that now other organisms have to defend themselves. And so once you cross certain thresholds in sort of evolutionary biology, once something happens to the environment, a big change, then um, you know it, everything else has to change relatively fast or go extinct. Um, it seems to be a lot of factors that came together at the at the Cambrian, where a lot of novelty occurred. So once you have hunters, you need to protect yourself, and so now there's a lot of pressure to have shells and hard body parts. Where before that was a waste of energy, you didn't need that, um, and so it's kind of analogous to. Um, you know, sort of um, economy. So before the, you know, the, the internet, there wasn't much. And then when you, when the internet hit in the nineties, there was just an explosion of all different types of uh, companies and, and uh, things in the economy. And then some of those stuck and others go extinct. And the ones that stuck are these, you know, these BMS that continue on to this day, but it's, it's sort of analogous to what happens with evolution. When you have, you know, a major environmental change, an extinction event, an increase in oxygen, it opens up a niche. And then when that is taken over, that creates a total different environment and everybody's got to change. Um, and that seems to be what happened at the, at the, at the, at the Cambrian in a relatively small um, geological time. But that's not unusual because we see these mass extinction events um, throughout evolutionary history, and then you see sort of a rapid change after that, um, and that uh, that that sort of makes sense um, uh, once uh, you sort of frame it uh, a little bit differently and, and and leave some of these preconceived notions that everything's gradual and and, and um, takes long periods of time. That's one of the things that the extended evolutionary synthesis, um, you know, points to is that you can have more rapid change because organisms um, have developmental pathways that have some plasticity. So if there's an environmental change, that developmental pathway can change a little bit without genetic mutations can alter the phenotype to better fit with the environment. So this idea that, you know, our genes control us, well, no, they're one piece that controls what the organism looks like, but the environment does as well. And so this uh, genetic program can lead to, you know, larger change in a shorter period of time because it has some plasticity, plasticity some ability to change as the environment changes. Um, and so it, it, uh, the extended evolutionary synthesis, I think is more um, uh, resonant with this idea of more rapid change uh, on the geological timescale. Yeah, this, the story that you're presenting sounds like um, sort of an interplay between an ordered system in, 
what you could call chance events. If something doesn't happen, then perhaps evolution takes a different turn. Are there certain historical events that have directed the evolutionary process? Did they play a significant role in the future outcome? Yeah, that's one of those million dollar questions with evolution and people argue about this back and forth all the time. And, and the Cambrian explosion is one um, a case of this, where people argue, well, you know, uh, the Cambrian um, explosion, which is where you got all these uh, animal forms that evolved, was just a chance event. And if we ran evolution again, you wouldn't have this, this, this huge chance event and you get a totally different set of animals that might have evolved, or you might not get animals at all. Um, and that's sort of this chance uh, contingent view of, of evolution. And I don't deny the, 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 the role of chance events and the contingent nature of evolution, but I think um, that uh, evolution, at least um, as we look at it, suggests that there's an underlying order um, and uh, limitations or directions that are inherent in the evolutionary process. That there's certain good ways of building an animal form that um, evolution is gonna find those eventually. And it's gonna find those at a certain point in time. And so a good example of this that it's often talked about is uh, uh, the extinction event that drove uh, uh, 65 million years ago that uh, is uh, associated with the, the dinosaurs uh, uh, going extinct on our planet. So there's the idea that you know mammals uh, wouldn't have risen to prominence and uh, had not the dinosaurs gone extinct. And so um, mammals um, emerging to prominence um, is essential for humans to evolve, right? Um, and so the idea is that, well, that extinction event, which is often thought to be um, caused by possibly a, a, a meteor hitting the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. If that hadn't happened and the dinosaurs hadn't gone extinct, the mammals would have never you know, taken over and humans wouldn't be here. Um, so you're looking at some chance event, this, this chance extinction event is the only reason humans are here. And I would take a different view in that the, the mammal way of making a living is such a good way of making a living um, you know, being able to um, you know, give birth to live young to protect your, your young while they're developing rather than laying eggs, uh, you know, the, being able to regulate your body temperature. It allows you to survive a lot of environmental perturbations. So eventually these large dinosaurs are going to go extinct because there's always environmental perturbations. There's always extinction events. There's always major environmental catastrophes, whether it's a bunch of volcan a volcanic eruption that changes, a huge volcanic eruption that causes the climate to change, whether it's a meteor hitting the earth, that at some point, uh, the mammal way of making a living is going to survive all these and become the dominant way, you know, on our planet amongst animals to, to sort of make a living. And the, the rise of the mammals would eventually lead to, you know, rise of a, a hominid-like creature with a large brain. Um, and so you, you, you can say that the form of the mammal, you know, the way they make a living is so good, it's, it's going to, we're going to get there at some point. Um, and so the chance events uh, affect maybe the timing of when something happens. Um, but we don't want to get lost in those chance events to think, you know, there's no pattern, there's no order, there's no structure in evolutionary processes. Dan, I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about order. Biology, as you were mentioning earlier, doesn't exist in a vacuum. At least things like genes and other 
of factors in, in biological evolution, there's a lot going on underneath the surface, if you will, in chemistry and physics. Can you talk a little bit about how physics and chemistry impact uh, biological evolution? Yeah, it's a good question, uh, Joe, and a good uh, uh, topic because I think a lot of uh, people don't appreciate enough um, the uh, way that biology is sort of directed or evolution is directed or, or limited by the, or influenced, uh, might be the best word, by the chemistry and the physics and the order of the chemistry and physics. So, uh, you know, there is evolution um, requires a good deal of order and it requires an ordered uh, universe to even get off the ground uh, and, and, and to work. Um, and that, that order in the chemistry and the physics um, is, is essential for evolution to work and it also helps dictate the directions in the sense that evolution can go. You know, there are certain things that are going to work because there's only, you know, because of the underlying chemistry and physics. There's so certain forms, life forms, that, um, uh, you know, are just because of our physics and the chemistry that we're, we're, we're stuck with, in a sense, aren't going to work, right? Um, and, and, and so that's going to limit what evolution can do. It's going to help push evolution down certain paths. Um, and, 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 and so that, that order is, is sort of essential for understanding evolution. If you don't see the connection between evolution and order, you're, you're going to miss certain patterns and, 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 and certain explanatory um, uh, mechanisms of why evolution is the way it is. Yeah, one of your favorite examples is uh, protein folding. Can you go into some detail on that? Yeah, that's a great example of how the underlying order in chemistry uh, influence evolution, right? So um, every living organism's got uh, made up of large number of proteins, and these proteins help drive, uh, you know, the functions of the cell, drive metabolism, allow you to replicate your DNA, divide, uh, and so forth. So. Um, the, these proteins, um, the structure that they take is to a large extent dictated by the chemistry and physics. Okay? So you think about what a protein is. It's made up of amino acids. Right? There's about 20 of them that are biologically relevant. And a protein is a string of amino acids. You can think of it as stringing together a bunch of balls, right? and the balls would be amino acids. Um, and so for a, a protein that's 100 amino acids long, okay, um, there is a near infinite variety of possible sequences, right? You can, you know, that first amino acid could be one of, of 20, that second amino acid could be one of 20 and the third. So it's just a huge number of possibilities. And you would think, how does evolution sort through those? You know, uh, if evolution ran again, it would come up with a totally different set, right? Well, the interesting thing is that um, when you take a, a protein, a string of amino acids and put it into water, right? If it folds, it's going to fold into one of two secondary structures, alpha helices or beta sheets. Now, there's a couple others that are sort of related to that that are really rare, but more often than not, they're going to fold into alpha helices and beta sheets if they fold at all. And the reason they do this is because of the underlying chemistry. Um, there's uh, the, the hydrophobic and hydrophilic interactions. You know, certain things like water, like oil doesn't like water, right? And it's, uh, so these amino acids will fold into those two structures because of the chemistry. So if you re-ran evolution again and you had proteins and they were put in water, they are going to fold into alpha helices and beta sheets because of the underlying chemistry. It's not something that evolution stumbles on. It's sort of a gift to evolution. And as a result, 
you can only fold alpha helices and beta sheets into uh, a limited number of, of, of ways. And so proteins have a limited number of structures because of the underlying physics and chemistry. So proteins are really convergent, meaning that you know, the same protein will evolve multiple times. The same structure of a protein can evolve multiple times because there's only limited structures to evolve and they're taking advantage of that underlying uh, order. Um, and, and, and so if you don't appreciate that underlying order, you don't appreciate really what's going on in protein evolution. Another area that you've talked about that I think is really interesting is this whole idea of harnessing light. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, light is one of those, uh, those uh, fundamental properties. So if you're going to try to, um, uh, you know, make sense of the light for vision, right? You know, the light that's scattered off objects, you're going to have to be able to focus that somehow uh, and make sense of the image that's coming towards you. Um, and, uh, and so the camera-like eye that we have, you know, we have a lens there that you can manipulate that can help focus that light onto the retina. Um, that thing's a great way of making uh, a living to be able to see with pretty good acuity. Uh, and you might think, well, that's, you know, uh, a, a, a one, uh, a rare event that evolution would, you know, was lucky and stumbled on that once. Well, it turns out it stumbled on that six, seven times, right? The same camera like eye you see in humans is um, the, um, that type of eye you see in cephalopods, right? You see um, in, uh, in, in certain worms, um, you see uh, it in uh, uh, other organisms as well. So the idea, why is it that uh, evolution has stumbled upon or reached the same structure multiple times? And you know, the, the argument is that, well, because there's only certain things that work to be able to sense and focus light. And if you want to do it, that camera-like eye is such a good solution that evolution is going to find that solution uh, eventually, um, uh, multiple times during evolution. So if we re-ran evolution again, light's going to behave the same way. You want to see it, you want to focus it. There's going to be an organism, if you give it enough time, that develops a camera-like eye. It might not be identical to ours, but it's going to look very, very similar. So the things that are going to evolve um, uh, are, are, are things that are going to work, and they're going to work because they have to obey and deal with the underlying chemistry and physics of uh, our, our universe. It's not all just uh, a random free-for-all in a sense that evolution. It's being you know, sort of dictated uh, to certain solutions uh, because that's just the way uh, that works best given the way the universe is structured. So this order is kind of underplayed, it seems like, among, you know, certain scientists and, and, and even within the general, you know, kind of science, uh, popular science. You know, we, we hear a lot about chance, randomness, but not so much about order. I think uh, what you've said before is that if you don't talk about both, you're not getting the full story. Yeah, that's right. I think you get an inaccurate picture of uh, what the science of evolution um, sort of shows. And often then people use that to build philosophical arguments that don't really make sense given the science. So, you know, a lot of people, you ask them, what do they think of evolution? What's their, uh, how do, what, what do they associate with that term? One of the common things that they uh, throw out is randomness, chance. It's just, a, you know, you have no idea what's going to happen, you know, um, so the, the, it's sort of interlinked with the evolution. And, the, and certainly there are chance events and, um, in evolution, and the, those chance events are important 
Uh, but those chance events play out on this bed of order, this bed of order um, that influences the direction of evolution and influences what's going to work. Um, and chance is more like an algorithm to sort through all the possibilities to reach those that are going to work. You know, you think about proteins, there's only certain ones that are going to work. These alpha, those the beta sheets, is, um, the, those are the secondary structures that they fold into certain uh, proteins. Chance is a great algorithm to find those, those folds, uh, but there's only certain folds that are going to going going to work um, and the, the the order is primary and the chance is a way of uncovering that order what's sort of buried in the physics and chemistry in a sense yeah does this what you've just described this kind of order underlying you know being the opportunity for chance events to take place in the first place is that part of the extended evolutionary synthesis or is that kind of outside of that particular area you know, it's, it's a little outside of that extended evolutionary synthesis, but it is um, sort of synergistic uh, with it, you know, because within the evolutionary, the extended evolutionary synthesis is um, this idea of um, what's called uh, developmental bias, that certain developmental pathways, so the developmental pathway that vertebrates take um, biases you in certain directions. There's certain structures that are easy to evolve in the developmental pathway that vertebrates use, right? Um, so there's certain things that um, are gonna be easier to evolve in the developmental pathway that invertebrates use, right? Um, and so that biases evolution in certain directions because of the underlying uh, developmental pathway. Um, so the pathway that's evolved influences future directions of evolution and what can and, and can't happen. And, uh, uh, and so again, evolution, there's some order and structure there. Um, so it's easier to build certain things um, uh, as a vertebrate, um, certain digits can be, be modified, um, others can't um, because of say developmental biases and that opens certain doors and shuts others. Um, so that's, that's sort of synergistic with the idea that there's an underlying order in evolution that opens certain doors and shuts other doors um, because that order is is going to dictate certain solutions you know um, so the order of light and the way light works that's going to dictate that we have to have certain processes to harness energy from that light you're going to have to have certain ways of focusing that light or sensing that light um, and so uh, proteins that can do that are going to evolve multiple times or going to evolve again because light is, is uh, the, the properties of light are going to be the same. They're not, that's part of the physics and chemistry of this, this universe. And so um, evolution is going to find ways to use that light. And it's going to be very similar ways to use that. There's only certain ways to use that light, to harness that energy, to sense it, um, and to, to use light that's scattered from objects to uh, visually process them. It totally makes sense. I mean, processing all of this as we've been going through the talk here, and it really makes sense. Uh, but, you know, I'm a non-scientist. You are a scientist. Are there others, other scientists that are coming to these same kinds of conclusions that you could point us towards? Yeah, the, the, there are. I think the, 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 the biggest spokesperson for this idea that, um, you know, convergence in evolution, this underlying order is sort of directing um, uh, evolution in some sense or, or, or uh, uh, guiding it, if you want to use that term, um, is uh, Simon Conway Morris, a paleontologist um, from uh, Cambridge. 
who uh, wrote a book called Life Solutions, Inevitable Humans in a Lonely Universe. And in that book, he really uh, sort of outlines the idea that, uh, you know, that evolution is, uh, in a sense, um, going to find certain solutions um, if you uh, give it enough time. Right, and the pathways might be different, but uh, it, it will get to certain solutions because those are what works. And he gives example after example of convergence, where you see the same solution found multiple times in separate lineages. I think that's why the title of the book, the subtitle, is "Inevitable Humans in a Lonely Universe." His argument is that you know once you get the evolutionary process going, <clears throat> given the constraints and the physical and chemical. Um, uh, constraints and, and laws and, and order that some type of, you know, large brain hominid is, is inevitable uh, because that's, uh, you know, a good way of, of making a living eventually. And the, the, the timing and so forth, um, as I've said, is, is going to be different. Um, there's a lot of contingent events that, that could delay the onset of that hominid creature or could speed it up, but eventually you're, you're going to get there. Um, because of, uh, um, of how um, organisms, you know, are, are uh, what forms are actually going to work. Yeah, well, Simon Conway Morris, that's a, a major figure in the field. Uh, and anyone else that our uh, listeners might want to check out? Yeah, he, he's uh, not a biologist, but uh, Stephen Barr, who's a physicist, he um, really gets into um, uh, this idea that there's order and that order sort of uh, influences um, you know things at, at, at a higher level so if you start at one level there's always a, a another level of order beneath that so if you look at organisms and the way they they function there's a level of order beneath that and then if you look at the physics uh, and the way molecules in a interact uh, at the chemistry look how molecules interact there's an order in the physics in the atoms and the subatomic forces that influence that and he traces sort of this order down to this fundamental level of order that you can describe um, as a physicist and that that fundamental order that's there dictates what emerges at the next level so for example the you know why do we live in a universe that only has basically 90 some stable elements right you say well why is there why don't we live in a universe with 110 or 200 or 500 why do we only have these sort of 90 stable elements you, know, you can make others but they're very short-lived and so forth but you really have these 90 stable elements um and he would argue, well, the reason is because the subatomic forces and the subatomic particles are structured in such a way that these are the only ones that, that can exist, right, that, that, that can be stable given the underlying order, right? Um, and and, and you, you can trace that, you know, why is it that then we have certain uh, proteins? Well, because these are what you get from these underlying um, atoms that, 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 that are stable. And so, you know, it, you, you, you could sort of see each level emerging from the order underneath it. Um, and, and, and that's a, a certain thing, an important thing I think we often, as scientists don't ask, you know, that, the, those, those fundamental questions. Um, you know, why do we get these proteins? Why do we get alpha helices and beta sheets and not something else? Why do we get these elements and not something else? Um, and I think those questions point towards, you know, this underlying order there. So Dan, I have one last question, and my final question is more of a philosophical one. And it, it really, we've, we've talked a lot about order, but 
I'm wondering, at least in your viewpoint, does order imply purpose? Uh, is there a sort of purposeful directedness towards the evolutionary story, or is that reading too much into it? That's yeah, a great question, uh, Joe. And I think this goes to the heart of most evolutionary debates. Um, you know, I think uh, people um, react to biological intelligent design um, uh, in either a positive or negative way, depending on whether they want to see purpose or particularly God in the evolutionary process, right? Um, and I think it's important to, to um, separate uh, sort of the scientific evidence from sort of philosophical arguments, right? And I think the scientific evidence points towards we have an ordered universe. Right? There is an underlying structure and order that we can know as, as humans, as scientists, uh, as even lay people as, as we read and investigate that. Um, and the, that order, as far as evolution is concerned, is absolutely essential for evolution to work. Uh, you don't have that order, evolution doesn't work. And if you don't have that order, um, <clears throat> that order dictates and influences the directions and the, uh, that evolution can take or the solutions evolution can reach, okay? So I think you know, that, that, that it's, you can make a scientific case that that order is key, it's important, and influences evolution. Um, and then the question is, where does that order come from, right? that order, right? And um, you, know, you can trace that order back, as I talked about. You, know, you can find, well, why do we have order in proteins? Well, because there's order in the elements. Why do we have order in the carbon atom, for example? Well, because there's order in uh, the subatomic particles and the forces that uh, make up and hold together the, the atom. But sooner or later, you reach sort of the foundational level of science where you're, you're, you're describing the fundamental forces of nature, right? And those are ordered um, and they're structured in a way that we can know them. And then you ask the question, well, why is that ordered? Why is there order at the foundational level? And you can't go to another level scientifically to explain that order. Right, science reaches its limits. Right, it explains the foundational level of nature. You know, this is what the 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 uh, you know lec uh, the, the strong nuclear force is. This is what the weak nuclear force is, and it's ordered in such and such a way. Um, and that's where that question of why is the universe ordered at a fundamental level um, uh, can't be answered scientifically. Right. Uh, that's something that has to be answered philosophically. Um, and that's where I think, you know, you can build a philosophical argument. Well, that order suggests that there is some purpose behind this, right? that we don't live in a unordered you know, random universe. Um, and uh, it does imply, um, if, if, for me, it implies purpose. Uh, I mean, a lot of people just don't want to answer that question. They say, well, yeah, there's order there, but it just is. That's, that's you know. Brute fact. Yeah. Brute fact, it is. Yeah. Well, great. That doesn't satisfy a lot of people. I want to know where that came from. Why is it? That why question that, um, you know, there are certain people to try to, you know, answer that scientifically. Well, there's a multi-universe, um, there's multiverses. And so we just happen to be in one universe that has order. Uh, plenty of other universes don't. And so it's just sort of random. But that just pushes the question back. Why do we live in a multiverse? Why is there an ordered multiverse, you know, uh, that, that can produce these, these, these ordered universes? Um, and so there is always that fundamental question, uh, I think, that nags at most people. It's one of those questions that I think nags at 
at most scientists is why is there order? Why is there purpose? And a lot of people see that that beauty in that order at that fundamental level, and it suggests to them that there's some purpose uh, behind. Um, Behind the world around us, uh, and uh, and I think you can make a, you know a good philosophical argument. But I, the, my my final point is that the science is not going to, it's not a scientific argument. I can't build a scientific proof for for purpose. Um, uh, you know that's not something science does. Science describes the material natural world, and it describes a very ordered world, and that leads to certain questions. Um, and that's why I think with evolution, when you see the role order plays in evolution, it allows you or, or suggests and makes you ask yourself certain other questions um, of why is evolution ordered in such a way, right? Rather than, you know, oh, order evolution is just chance processes that doesn't imply anything then. Um, so, um, uh, so I think it changes the, the, the way uh, the framing of the question. Um, but it's key that it is a philosophical question that science can't answer, um, but it, it, it can push you in that direction to want to answer that question. Well, this has been great um, that, that, you know, there's, there's other areas, areas that we could explore. I mean, you know, the, this whole idea of information in biology uh, that uh, Paul Davies talks so much about, that would be a really interesting area to talk about. Uh, but maybe uh, we'll do a part two to this. Uh, but for now, uh, we're going to end. And I thank you, Dan, for um, spending the time with us and enlightening us with uh, some of your thoughts and ideas on uh, the science and, uh, and even a little bit of the philosophy there at the end. Thanks a lot. All right, thanks, Joe. It's good to be with you. This has been a Modges Center recording. To learn more, go to our website at modgescenter.com.